0: Deconstruction, a podcast from FI, Philosophy and the History of Ideas Research Team at Deakin University, Australia. Welcome to Deconstruction. I'm Associate Professor Patrick Stokes. In the wake of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, issues of Indigenous sovereignty are more visibly in play in Australian political discourse. But should Indigenous activists seek recognition from the societies they find themselves confronting? Or is seeking recognition itself a form of subjugation as part of fire's lecture series on inclusive philosophy professor yin paredes from the alfred Deakin institute spoke to us on the topic of recognition refusal
1: and reconciliation and he kindly agreed to let us record thanks for inviting me along to my first inclusive philosophy seminar series so I had an open slather for what I could talk about, and I decided to talk about this topic: recognition, refusal, and reconciliation. So it's really about some a particular theory in what some would say is political philosophy and how it relates to some recent developments by uh, indigenous theorists, indigenous theorists around the world in relation to that theory. And what that has to do with broader social ideas, like reconciliation, which has been an interest of mine for a long time. So we're kind of um, also doing a grand a bit about this topic at the moment called Beyond Recognition, which links in these ideas of refusal, which I'll explain soon, and recognition to uh, things in Australia like constitutional uh, recognition or inclusion of Indigenous people in the Constitution, treaties and those sort of ideas. And I'll bring those in at the question uh, point of the asking of questions at the end. If you do have any questions as we go, feel free to ask. I may not know the answers. I'm not a philosopher. Just to put that out there and make that clear. <laughs> so, recognition theory. Um, influential in politics and political theory, political philosophy. Since Charles Taylor and Axel Honneth in the mid-90s each published a book at various two years apart, I think, unrelated issues in this idea of recognition. Um, so, the, uh, the basic tenets of it are uh, that we are ourselves because we're recognised by other people. Sometimes the other, um, sometimes just others in society. And that's where we derive a sense of subjectivity. Um, it can happen, obviously, from an early age in terms of ideas of parents and recognition by them as forming the selfhood for infants and children. Um, But also, uh, I guess, of more interest to my particular presentation, it's about groups, societal groups, and how they're recognised in society, like minority groups such as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, for example. And the point of it um, essentially then moves on to ideas of misrecognition or non-recognition as um, inherently... Bad things that create problems in societies and in individuals create feelings of like shame and rage and hurt and indignation that they are not being um, respected or being disrespected or ignored or elided or excluded in some way. Once again, this can happen interpersonal level but also intergroup level which is kind of um, where the theory went pretty fast in terms of um, thinking around... Um, multiculturalism and group minority rights and those sort of ideas. So um, social groups struggling for recognition have increasingly emphasised equality within political communities rather than the more uh, original ideas I guess of inter subjectivities, interpersonal into subjectivities within intimate relationships, such as parent-child stuff, and and so this politics has been used in in so by social groups in social activism uh, to achieve better inclusion. And you can think of things like uh, gay marriage and the debate around that, for example, would be very easy to analyse through a lens of recognition theory. It's about where as uh, rights. Um, of groups not recognised or or they're a right they don't have the same rights as other members of society and how can that be changed so it's about increasing access to certain rights, symbolic often rights uh, and freedom of expression and those sort of things, social status so it's been used in various ways quite successfully Um, but then in recent times it's been critiqued well, it's always been some sort of critique, but this latest form of critique um, is about refusal. There's more, though. Um, probably a, a much longer-term critique of recognition theory and this idea of being recognised as important was, you know, what, is it too symbolic? I guess some people have asked. What? How does it relate to material resources, ideas of capitalism and colonisation and colonialism, and... Um, and so it's, uh, it sometimes it's contrasted with, so recognition is contrasted with ideas of redistribution of material resources, economic uh, resources often. So that's one the old critique. Um, I guess the more recent stuff around refusal and Indigenous people is really starting to grapple again with ideas of power and what is mutual. This what is mutual recognition within recognition theory, and how does it overlay on ideas of power and landscapes of power and the different powers between social groups or individuals, but often social groups in society. Um, so they, what they're saying is that recognition is thought of as inherently a good. Uh, and misrecognition or non-recognition as a bad, but is it possible to be recognised as inferior and subordinate? Not a form of misrecognition at all, but actually, I guess, attending to the power dynamics that do exist. And so there's a tension, I guess, in this theory between the abstract as people should be recognised, so the normative, and the actuality of how power works in societies. So to be recognised and inferior and subordinate when in fact that's how you're treated and that's the history of your social group in society, uh, is that really a misrecognition at all or is that actually recognising the reality as it is in, in the social situation? And the last one, of course, is a failure to grapple with ideas of radical alterity or incommensurability in the sense that... The theory assumes that it's possible for others, the other or different members of a society or different social groups to understand each other fundamentally uh, to a certain extent anyway and some commentators have said, well, that's not really possible and people have radically different ways of life, ideas of the good life, senses of how they understand the world. Ontologies, epistemologies, and so on. So, with those incommensurabilities, you undermine the very foundation of recognition theory um, as a way of operating. So, that brings us to um, the idea that recognition can be harmful in itself. And um, Audra Simpson is one of the main proponents of. Uh, a refusal, this new approach that indigenous, some indigenous scholars and communities are using to refuse to be recognized in a sense, to refuse to be part of um, a mutual sense of um, knowing a place in society between social groups. So that's a new one. But Beth, Beth Povanelli is an anthropologist, has talked about this for some time and they all come under this idea of how Indigenous people are perceived by mainstream or dominant societies, nations, nation-states. Um, and, and Beth talks about the need that the colonial gaze has to recognise Indigenous people in very specific ways so as having certain types of differences... Um, but also certain types of sameness. So, having a system of law or uh, dream, dreaming stories, or something that are understandable by others, uh, but are not violating core values of societies. So, other sorts of differences, um, like for example, maybe spearing as as traditional punishment as something that's beyond the pale, that's um, incommensurable with liberal values, um, as something that that people don't want to recognise as, as integral to Indigenous culture. So it's it's an interplay of sameness and difference. And, and in her book, she's talking a lot about land right claims and how the state expects Indigenous people to um, demonstrate un, unbroken connections with their land at the same time as colonisation, the whole point of colonisation was to break those connections with land. And so it becomes a question of... Performativity, I guess, in a Butlerian sense, and and how Indigenous people perform within a cunning of recognition. So it's a very good book. Anyway, recent stuff has mentioned things of like the ruse of consent. So the idea that you get consent in some way from Indigenous people, and then therefore you own their land. Um, we know that that's what. Um, Happened here in Melbourne. As the first attempt at treating in Australia it was John Batman's attempt to make a treaty with people in the Melbourne area and give them a few sheep for the you know whole of Port Phillip Bay or something like that. So these ideas of informed consent, I guess, in an ethics perspective and what informed really means and and power dynamics. So that brings us to this idea, this most latest idea that breaks with recognition theory, which is refusal. So. Um, refusal as an alternative. I'll give you a concrete example of what I mean in a sec. But um, it's a generate... People think of refusal in these ways. Um, It generates new possibilities, new modalities, new forms of relationships can emerge. It can be a a step on the way to a different type of recognition or it may be um, an idea of not really trying to gain recognition from the state. So things like... Um, constitutional inclusion of Indigenous people in the Constitution are a means of recognising Indigenous people. So the state is now uh, as a more front and centre, I guess, um, place for Indigenous people. But a lot of these communities are going, well, we want to be separate. We want to refuse to be part of whatever this is, this nation state, this social contract, um, this popular sense of us as Indigenous people who want to... Really refocus on our our own communities in a sense. So um, it's a different form of belonging. Um, it's as it says here. It's an insistence, for example, that this is our land, not that not a resistance to the idea that it isn't. So it's speaking to different groups in a way, more more speaking perhaps within indigenous groups. So this is the ideas that have been recently talked about about why refusal might be interesting. <laughs> In the case of Indigenous refusal, um, it's a, it's really a, a resistance or insistence that we shouldn't speak to colonisers as the primary audience for our claims. Um, it draws on the contradictory paradox that um, prior, what Povinelli calls the priority of the prior, means the Indigenous sovereignty claims supersede claims of the sovereign state, making nation-states... An impossibility, uh, in a kind of, in a kind of sense, um, and that you can't ask for. It's getting back to the idea that you sort of can't ask for power. How do you ask for power? How do you ask for equality? You can't. So, why should we try at all to talk to the nation state about these things? So, um, yeah, it's the refusal of state recognition in favour of a communal sort of um, self recognition. So examples from some literature and some, ac- some developments in recent times um, in Australia. There's a paper written about um, what Darwin Indigenous people think of white people in Darwin um, and they were talking about this rejection of neoliberal ideals of employment, asset accumulation, good debt, and various forms of good life that are very modern. Um, that's one. Uh, but also more interestingly and more sort of broadly applicable, are, I guess, geographical developments. So there are more than one um, micronations popping up around Australia. So the Yidinji tribal nation, Is one example who declared in 2001 that they were separate from the Australian nation state. The guy who who sort of spearheaded that, you know, gave up his bank account, his driver's license, his Medicare card and superannuation passport and then they started printing Udingi license plates instead of Queensland number plates. And, you know, mostly it went unnoticed but I guess um, it does create some problems um, for policing of cars that don't have Queensland license plates, for example. (laughs) It's a political statement. It's largely symbolic, but it has potential, I think, to be something more. And there was a paper written recently about this other one, uh, Murawari, Republic of Murawari, uh as another micronation, sovereign micronation, that's where it is, on the border of Queensland, New South Wales. They've got a flag with uh, the sky, the ground, the uh, eight different tribes of, of the Murawari. And they're just saying, look, you know, we don't want to be part. We want to refuse to be part of the nation state. And they're exploring different ways that they might make that happen. But largely symbolic. It's not like people are gearing up for warfare or anything like that. But it's, um, it's part of a, a move that, that comes from, I guess, in a, in a linear sense, from the original idea to have constitutional recognition for Indigenous people as the 50th anniversary of the 1967 re- referendum, that didn't work out, and people moved on to the idea of treaty. And these groups are just going beyond that and saying, actually, we're not—we're just not interested in, in dealing with nation-state, not the Australian um, nation at all. I just—we just, just want to do our own stuff, and we're going to—we're going to do that by declaring um, that fact. So, um that's the main uh, background to the discussion I wanted to raise and then a couple of pages of questions to get us started. Can true or real recognition be harmful or are such effects really just another form of misrecognition or non-recognition? So how does that work definitionally? Uh we can make it work in different ways, but I guess how does it apply in real life and and where does the definition intersect with the reality? Um Is Indigenous refusal, like micronations or a radical idea of a good life, are they refusing recognition or rejecting it? Um, Or do do Indigenous people actually want a different form of recognition? So it gets back to that question. Uh, If recognition is fundamentally good and misrecognition is fundamentally bad, we always really just want a different sort of recognition, actually, in the end. And this could be a, a kind of political gambit, a negotiation technique, I guess, on the way to that. Is recognition by and refusal of the state both equally impossible for Indigenous people given the histories and the colonial realities um, of the situation, the impossibility of the sovereign nation state um, on stolen Indigenous land, those sort of ideas, that makes recognition difficult, but is refusal also difficult because of the huge power differentials between the groups involved? Is a focus on communal self-recognition a return to intersubjective accounts of recognition or something else? And then, of course, how do ideas of treaty fit in? Um, Are they another form of recognition? Are they some sort of refusal of constitutional approaches? And finally, how does refusal link with white fantasies or with rural, as Emma Covell has written about in her work? So a lot of white... Non-indigenous, often white people will say, "We we want to create a situation of indigenous self-determination where indigenous people can take over running of whatever it is, this organisation, this community, um, this land, and they have this fantasy of being able to withdraw and give full support to indigenous people." It's very, it's a very common and and popular idea. Um, Sarah Madison is a very important indigenous, um, theorist who works in indigenous spaces. She's a white woman. She's written a book that's coming out next year that's all about um, uh, colonial fantasies of basically separatism. You know, her, her solution is that no interactions with indigenous people can be positive positive given the power of dynamics, and we just need to withdraw and just let Indigenous people do what they want. So refusal comes in deeply enmeshed with these ideas of, of withdrawal by um, left-leaning um, white academics and activists. And how does reconciliation fit with all this is the question. Um, so what does reconciliation mean? What does it look like in a situation where there is separatism or there is a sense of refusal or that, or a, a, a situation where there's incommensurabilities and you can't even understand each other properly to be able to conciliate or reconciliate. Is refusal actually a, a form of reconciliation in the sense that it's aiming to for people to create their own power that's separate from and not indirect dynamics with the, the nation state itself and it's it's not very sort of kumbaya together-ish but it might be an actual form of reconciliation or well, as some people say conciliation because we never um, uh, kind of it's the first step conciliation and then you can reconcile after so the first step has never happened alright so that should be enough to get on with any questions and discussion points and comments well that does that brings it into some of what i didn't mention which was um, recent scholarship to to understand how this recognition theory has already been something that's used in the work of du bois and fanon you know to think about internalized colonization and double consciousness and the, the reflection of the white gaze and all those ideas you talked about come into it it's a um, becomes sort of self misrecognition in some ways and and so the the sense of self the, the senses of self are not equal, yeah, so that creates a different power dynamic on another level, yeah. Um,
2: Thanks, Ian. I suppose some of the questions you posed, maybe it was in the previous PowerPoint suppose I'm going to put in a plug for recognition rather than non-recognition here and I'm not going to think it's sort of uh, white heritage is especially significant or important and there is a kind of Eurocentrism about some of these figures, right, about mm. well, Harper, Mars, Taylor, uh, Honnett, there's this sort of triumphalism, it's, it's bound up with the Enlightenment actually so it's a pity yeah. in some ways that um, one of our colleagues, Matt, couldn't have been here because that's his area of research. Yeah. But I suppose, I mean, if we think about Hegel's original story of the struggle for recognition, even if Hegel has his own sort of triumphalist picture of where history's going, getting better in some sense, the interesting thing about the struggle for recognition is that... um, paradoxically enough, it's the so-called slave or or bondsman who's dependent on the master. Um, And so the master needs the recognition of the slave. So in that sense, it appears that this would be a form of not giving the master what they want or what they depend. So refusal would seem to be, at least to me, a stage in recognition um, in the process as Hegel describes it. Now, and I suppose... I'm not really an expert in social and political theory. I have taught this stuff actually in a unit here at Deakin, justice and equality. Nice. So I've taught it a bit, but without being an expert. But I suppose it's just hard. It's hard to see how it would be sort of. Re- refusal would be sort of an ongoing dynamic. And so I suppose it, it appears to me as if it would be um, an important process and step, something that needs to be done, but it, it, it's not the, the end, whatever the end goal may be. Yeah. And maybe feminism is a case in point. Um, I'm not sure what people would say about this, but there are obviously analogies with maybe second wave feminism, which was more separatist in orientation. Um, there may still be forms of that feminism which are dominant today, but arguably it's shifted, contemporary feminism has shifted away from that to other forms of uh, intersubjectivity, I suppose. But just a few thoughts. I'm not sure whether you agree or others here will agree.
1: Yeah, I mean, I suspect that you're right. I suspect that it's, um, I I mean, I read a whole book. I I reviewed this book recently and it was, I just can't see the long-term Viability of separatist ideas, you know, we're so intermingled after centuries of colonisation. It's just not. It's not really possible. Even who is indigenous and who is not, you know, it's in itself is a contested and very intermixed space. So I think um, you're right. I I, I would see it as a kind of um, uh, different and new approach to negotiating a better. Um, a better kind of uh, power dynamic and, and sense of of relationship, I guess, between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples and, yeah, refusing to recognise um, the powerful is um, is quite effective in this context because the powerful have a lot of vested interest in how they are seen by colonised peoples a lot of the time even people who are very anti-Indigenous people have a lot of vested interest in that. So it makes sense. Um, The relationship is largely symbolic. There's not much material impact of Indigenous people withdrawing from anything much because there's very few of us around, but the symbolic impact on the national imaginary and imagined communities is quite large. So I think that's probably what it is. It's a process on the way to something else that will be a different form of recognition. Yeah.
3: Uh, yeah, thanks. That was so interesting. Um, so I'm thinking about a very recent event of the refusal of the nine-year-old girl to uh, stand for the National Anthem and and I'm just very interested by the ricocheting effects that that's had, you know, through Australian um, public discussion. Mm. Um, so I've been following it on Twitter. Um, and, yeah, I was very interested in... Uh, yeah, I was very interested by the um, the ferocity of the um, put-downs by people like Pauline Hanson. Mm. And I was also very touched to see there's a movement now, I Stand With Harper, and a lot of Indigenous people are, um, yeah, posting um, uh, <laughs> uh, video memos and, and gathering them together. So, you know, these things matter, I think, even the symbolic stuff really matters, but my question is about, I was very interested where you said um... Uh, refusal can be generalising new social modalities um, and you talked about privileging the possible over the probable. Mm. I thought that was really interesting um, insofar as uh, I see the probable as generated by, you know, what we take for granted about our social modalities and it's a way of kind of breaking that up. But my question is how do you – how does – how do we generate new social modalities? Is this something that can be consciously engineered or is this something, and this is what I suspect as a pragmatist philosopher, it's more something that has to happen. So, in fact, consciously engineering is maybe likely to just create a disaster, but what you really need is for people to live together maybe more. Don't know. Interested in your thoughts on that?
1: Well, yes, I think that the um, the protest, Harper's protest is, yeah, it's a totally different form of refusal, but it is, it's about refusal as well. And um, I actually emailed Harper and her parents told me that um, mine was one of the first emails they received and Harper was very happy to read Uh, about my support for her protests. This is one of the problems is that when you start creating this refusal and separatism creates a kind of a a gulf between activists who have similar goals in mind, some are white and some are black, you know, and this is how would we configure Harper's Moves in a a world where there are lots of indigenous micronations and they kind of – didn't have an interest in what happened in the rest of the country, it wouldn't make any sense. So this ongoing kind of interlinking is, is important, yeah. So I think, um, as Tully was saying, in some sense, the refusal gives people space away from these relationships, but at the same time we have to come back to them as well to um, forge new modalities for, of relating to each other. I don't know about the consciously versus non-consciously, or what disaster exactly will ensue from that. I think that we're always trying to do things that usually work out completely differently to what we intended. Um, and I think the refusal will probably be one of those things as well. It'll have some intended effects and others that are uh, unintended as well. So yeah, I agree with you. I think it's a bit of a bit of both, and um, be really interesting to think more about. Different types of refusal. Wrote a paper um, with Emma Koval about um, refusal uh, in a different sense, and that was a, a kind of a refusal of um, as it to do with indigeneity itself, and people like me who are Aboriginal but fair-skinned, and our refusal to be interpolated, I guess you could say, as as white. Um, and that's a different sort of refusal, which actually has um, very much is in conversation with state-based regimes about who who Indigenous people are and the, the definitions of indigeneity. But it's there's lots to it, yeah. And um, I think there's many more ways we could understand ideas of refusal and separatism and space away from and within interculturality and how that might all play out in the political. And social effects. No answers, of course, but, yeah, I like the idea.
0: I was just going to ask on, in the case of Harper, too. Um, yeah. I was really struck by that, um, by, you know, the power of her doing that. But mm. And, I mean, she's nine, so I, I'm not going to say anything remotely critical of her. I think it's fantastic <laughs> that she did what she did. Um, if only I, she'd read more Hegel, she could have done something different. Well, no, <laughs> <it>. <laughs> well yeah, I've, I've said many times life is too short to read Hegel. But... Um, <laughs> I wonder though, there's an interesting kind of tension though in what she's doing in that she specifically framed what she was doing in terms of saying that that line young and free is not inclusive. Because mm-hmm. it it excludes um, indigenous people that have been here for tens of thousands of years, and yet you could step and so she, in a way, what she seemed to be saying was, well, please tweak the anthem so that it's no longer exclusionary in that way. But then mm-hmm. you could turn around and say, well, it's a settler anthem. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so <laughs> the problem is not the problem goes a lot deeper than what she's actually trying to say. So I wonder if there yeah. is even within the act of resistance itself an interesting tension there, mm-hmm. as you're saying between sort of. a a mode of recognition which is basically just absorb the First Nations into the settler state or whether it's um, it points to something deeper there that needs to be, it can only be addressed through a sort of refusal mode.
1: Yeah, well, there's always layers of insistence and resistance and I think, you know, um, what Harper's done there is she talked about the Advance Australia Fair as a kind of a a motto that was really about advancing White Australia, and she's talked about um, the young and free thing. But in a way, like you say, I mean, you can't you can't rehabilitate a national anthem, you know. <laughs> I mean, I mean. Well, that's a great example. I, my view on that is that it's a waste of time because for exactly the same reason that you don't – it doesn't matter what day you you commemorate Australia, it's got to be a mourning as well as a celebration. You know what I mean? So it doesn't matter what day – oh, we'll find a good day when nothing bad happened on this day and we'll just party on, you know? Like, no, it doesn't matter. I would rather you keep the date – and add a sense of mourning and and a sense of the loss that was created when the nation um, came about. I mean, some of the commentators for the Harper case, I can't remember which shock drop it was, shock, shock, but he said something like, I don't know why these people are complaining about every. You know, they'd li- they're they in a school. You know, schools wouldn't exist without colonization. <laughs> colonization is inherently a good thing because look at what's created in the world. And, you know, that's actually true in a way. You know, we wouldn't be having schools. We wouldn't be singing national anthem if it wasn't for colonization. So. I guess just trying to foresee some of the problems that might uh, arise with
2: refusal. Um, I know that certain uh, people in power, they often like to set up um, groups that seek to be recognised um, as an object of conflict. You know, we have people setting up effigies in their office, taking mm. pride in um, stopping people from entering the country. Mm. Is that a, would that potentially be a problem here? If they, if if groups of people. Um, refuse to recognize or be part of a recognition that legitimizes power, those people in power
1: can in turn turn those people into objects of conflict or a threat? Yes. Well, definitely. I think that's a a common move is to um, demonize and uh, I guess um, they do it anyway. But, you know, Indigenous people also are objects of kind of um, sympathy and pity and those sort of emotions in Australia as well as anger, that they kind of make a fuss about anything. So there's a mixture, I guess, and... We've had, you know, obviously long history of conflict with Indigenous people, but um, most people don't, aren't super aware of that or don't think of that first um, in terms of frontier um, sort of thinking, I guess. So it is a danger. Um, Strangely enough, you know, a lot of places where this has happened, um, the state has been largely... Unmoved by these efforts, so you know um, Audra Simpson's work and and her among the Mohawk in Canada. It's you know includes stories about people just going okay well I'm not Canadian anymore I don't have any of this stuff so I'm just going to wander on to an to a uh, people invite me to conferences so I'm going to wander on to an international flight to Ecuador and I'm going to hop off the plane with no passport because why would I have it I'm not a Canadian I don't have a Canadian but they had their own passports that no one recognises and so what what ensues is the Canadian government you know bends over backwards to rescue them from the situation of, of being a a, a non citizen in a in a foreign Country and actually does all the background work so that two days later they can actually leave immigration and um, go to their conference. So it's a it's a not a it's not a very conflictual approach to their to their refusal at all. It's an enabling approach, I guess. So yeah, but there's but there's potential for conflict, I think, of various kinds, and definitely um, negative press, if you will, uh, for things like micronations and. Um, And for people who, you know, make lifestyle choices to live on outstations and refuse to um, get jobs and go into household debt. I mean, they're going to be unpopular with a lot of people, right? So, um, it's always a risk of anything that's remotely radical is the the polarisation that will... And these this is what I'm talking about when I say there'll be unintended negative consequences and one of them will be these kinds of effects, I think.
3: Yeah. Uh, so just on that, with the Canadian government bending over backwards to rescue the person without the Canadian passport in Ecuador, yeah. um, that's very interesting. But it strikes me that that is self-interested behaviour as well on the part of the Canadian government because otherwise there's going to be some kind of international incident and it's going to draw attention to the legacy of... Ca- Colonialization in Canada and so on and so forth. So, mm. yeah, there could be an interesting strategic game to play here in terms of, uh, yeah, this using the refusal to then um, up the ante on a, you know, a, a, a more – a better quality kind of recognition possibly. Oh, yeah. So, there's so many twists and turns
1: here. There's vast potential for what in critical race theory is called entrance, interest convergence – so imagine, you know, um, being able to uh, – this is what self. some people say that so this whole self-determination era from the 70s till the late 90s was all about, was governments being able to wipe their hands of the problem and say, well, you know, we gave control of everything to Indigenous people, looks, this is what they're doing with it. That's just the way it is. It's not our place to, to, to change that. And so you can imagine the, the implications of having more sort of – Strength in micronations will be, you know, we already have an Aboriginal community-controlled health sector. People are now talking about having an Aboriginal community-controlled education sector. And, you know, the government may eventually just not have to give any money to Indigenous people. Imagine how much joy they'd get out of that. (laughs) <laughs> As you can see from the micro-nations, a lot of this, and even the outstation movement, you know, um, where Aboriginal people live in small, small communities far from urban centres. It's very territorial. It's very geographic. The ideas of um, the basis of refusal comes from the sense that uh, we were here first, basically. And so whatever you are imposing is uh, is something that came later and it's not what we want. We've never said that we do. Uh, and so you, you could imagine that would be very different if you tried if – if a migrant community in Australia tried to do something like this, the way it would play out would be entirely different. Yeah. I think that the refusal stuff in Australia, I mean it comes from <sighs> – from, from Canada originally, but in its latest form. But I think that, yeah, the, the constitutional stuff has re- really raised a lot of interest in these ideas. And, um, yeah, because it was uh, it was rushed, it was something that kind of came a bit late in the piece and there wasn't, um, there was that idea, the fear, I guess, in the Indigenous community that it was kind of a, a trying, a uh, closing off move, you know to say, yeah. there's, and there's, there are big material concerns about yeah compensations and land and also I guess um, it's ongoing colonisation in remote communities in terms of um, a failure to rec- to recognise language and ways of life and English Englishisation of places and <laughs> these things with uh, which are yeah social effects that are. I guess somewhere in between the symbolic and the purely material, but obviously a big deal, uh, cultural destruction is, is ongoing. So, I mean, the goal of a colon- c- colonialism is to eliminate the Indigenous people. So until that's achieved, um, it will continue. Objection to recognition theory? Um, it is a it, – it's, it's an objection to um, – so the the sort of basis of the theory is very interpersonal, and and when it's taken to the intergroup, I guess it's still about. Um, I mean, this is, distribution happens at the interpersonal too, but it's it's the idea that recognition theory has to focus too much on things like, for example, gay marriage. You know, it's completely symbolic. There's no material gain from that. There's no looking at. Um, what the employment outcomes of straight versus um, LGBTIQ people are, you know what what is the impact of discrimination um, is is lost in a sense behind a, a big symbolic. Um, <laughs> And in Australia, the same thing, you know, like laws against Indigenous people marrying or moving about and that sort of stuff, uh, curfews, that sort of stuff. I mean, these are um, laws that have been removed and so – but discrimination and its impacts continues in other ways. So, yeah, I guess there's a difference between um, legal rights or rights in law or or kind of um, a sense of equality – and then the reality of, of equality. And then we get into ideas of, um, yeah, how do we redistribute in the, in this, in a situation where the past has created inequalities in wealth, for example. Um, even if things are operating fairly now, the, the impact of the past is something that creates these huge differences in people's material needs and material... Um, uh, Opportunities. So, the the critique is that recognition is too symbolic, and there's actual, often what I consider economic or land. You know, land-based ideas um, that people just don't have what they need to live. Is refusal more than just the? Frustrating the, the giving up from frustration of uh, recognition of being being either just being mm. symbolic or recognition legitimizing the power of sovereignty um, mm. by requiring
2: it's almost like when the WAPOL points out um, that women being given permission to to take a certain position um, it legitimizes. The power and further perpetuates the power
1: of man. Is is it Mm. just a frustration of that? Mm. I think that's probably how it started, yeah. I think it started with the frustration of the limits of being recognized by the powerful. That's very... It's limited in what it can, what it can produce. What gains you can get from that. So, I think it started that way, but then it became more about um, then looking inward and drawing out a lot of it's about drawing out strengths you know of communities you know what strengths do we have um, how do we understand ourselves let's stop talking to and on the terms of another party that's external to our community and think about revival it, it's actually tied up a lot with ideas of cultural revitalization and revival so it's come I think from frustration but it's grown to something much much bigger yeah.
0: Deacon. Instruction is produced by FI, Philosophy and the History of Ideas Research Team at Deakin University, Australia. For more information, visit blogs.deakin.edu.au slash philosophy.